Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irina Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I'm Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed on this podcast are our own and not our employers. Today, we have with us another special academic guest, Professor Derek Bambauer, who is both an internet law scholar and has personal experience using dating apps. So let's hear all about how that intersection is going. We are lucky to have with us today Professor Derek Bambauer, who is a professor of law at the University of Arizona in Tucson at the time of this recording, but he's actually about to move across the country to the University of Florida in Gainesville. Congratulations. He researches internet censorship, cybersecurity, and intellectual property. He has also taught at Brooklyn Law School, where we actually worked together for a year, and at Wayne State Law, in addition to being a research fellow for two years at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard Law School. Derek further has a background in software development, and he worked as a systems engineer at Lotus Development Corporation, which is part of IBM. Derek has a JD from Harvard Law School and a BA from Harvard College. Derek is twice divorced from other academics and has one young child, and he has kindly agreed both to share his life story and some of his expertise with us. Derek, welcome to Strangers on the Internet. Do you want to tell our listeners about your romantic history and what recent challenges you have faced in that area related to dating apps or otherwise? Irina, thank you so much to you and Michelle for having me on the podcast. Um, I'm really delighted to be here, um, especially you know with the written guarantee that this will solve all of my dating problems. That's really reassuring. Uh, and it's, um, it's, it's a wonderful uh, connection between the, the work and the personal to have a chance to uh, see firsthand what I uh, research in part. Romantic history, I think that you summarized it nicely, which is I've, I've been married twice and divorced twice and uh, dabbled with internet dating in the very early days of it when I was at Wayne State in Michigan, tried it a little bit when I was in, in Brooklyn, and um, like so many of us have turned to it almost exclusively here in Tucson, especially during and after the pandemic, partly just because of a sort of natural affinity for all things internet, and partly simply because in COVID there was really no other choice other than you know sort of waving to people from the rooftops, which didn't turn out to be very effective. I think that for me, dating apps were uh, a really lovely illustration of the larger phenomenon, Irina, that you and I study, which is they are a wonderful and terrible creation of the architecture of the internet. The internet makes information cheap. And that is both, uh, it removes barriers, which is important, and it really distorts the signal to noise ratio, which is also difficult. And so I found myself going up the learning curve significantly on dating apps, despite being familiar with this phenomenon in areas from online misinformation or music piracy, any number of other things that are, these are all sort of species of the same genus, but I wound up being sort of a newbie in the world of online dating apps. And so uh, I've, I've tried a, a few of the different apps and I have to say that overall, I, I am actually an optimist. Uh, I have met some genuinely lovely people, uh, some of which have turned into friendships and some of which under you know, some of these meetings under other circumstances might really have played out well. And so I think that the internet dating uh, ultimately will be an important piece of, of trying to meet a significant other or, or partners. Hopeful that the industry will evolve, which is maybe something that we'll talk about a bit later in the show, both in ways that make dating apps more useful and frankly, safer. Let me ask you specifically, you had the summary that you sort of gave of your own experiences with dating and dating apps so far seems to be mostly positive. So... What are your secrets? How is it that you've been able to have, or are you just highlighting the generally positive experiences where you have made some almost but not quite matches or some good friends? 
So you're absolutely right, Michelle, which is that that was a rather rosy uh, version of the past, right, which is is not entirely accurate. I will say that one of the wonderful things about listening to your podcasts is that I learned a lot, but they're also quite entertaining. And there have been times where I thought, wow, that is an absolutely extraordinary story. But I thought it was extraordinary both in the sense of being fascinating and also unlikely. On the other hand, having now personally gone through it, extraordinary set of experiences that have been both deeply weird, sometimes really informative, sometimes funny, occasionally sad. Uh, those are sort of the downside of internet dating. And uh, so I think for me, the hard part has been like for so many people that people seem wonderful uh, when you're, you're texting with them and when you first meet them and then things go awry for a variety of reasons. And so it is the difficult combination as that New York Times article about a month ago had of the sort of constant resurgence of hope and then having hope dashed. And so for me, a large part of it was to uh, try to let go of expectations and to realize that this is like meeting people in real life in that very few people that we meet sort of casually on the street in the workplace become friends or even kind of work acquaintances. And it feels, I think, in some ways more vulnerable and personal because this is specifically about dating. We wind up revealing a fair amount of information about ourselves to strangers. And it has this slight undertone, sometimes more than slight, of competition. And that makes it difficult, especially for people who uh, tend to be competitive anyway. And uh, so the, the circles that we all swim in, which is people who are professionals and academics, are slightly driven. They generally don't like to do badly or to lose. And that makes it a little bit hard. And so for me, some of it was changing the framework through which I viewed things and realizing that it is, in fact, a process and trying to uh, damp down my expectations. and also when something didn't go well with someone that I met online, to try to actually use that experience also to reflect about what I was doing or saying or presenting and to try to think, oh, okay, I found this to be difficult or challenging or off-putting. Am I doing the same thing or can I recognize patterns in what I'm doing? And so at some level, um, if I can sort of harken back to the IBM days, I feel like online dating is just different sort of iterative versions of yourself, right? There's like Derek Online 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, and so forth. And so I, I'm hopeful that there are just fewer bugs and more features with each version. <laughs> I love that. I'm so glad I asked you about that because I think you gave some really solid ideas for our listeners to think on. So generally, as you said, the idea of letting go of expectations, but man, you really got me thinking about this in a different kind of way about some of the points you had made. So for example, the competitive element, as you said, you know, some groups of people tend to be more competitive anyway, but also on the inverse side of that, people as a therapist, my mind goes to who might struggle with that and feeling like they would not come out on top in a competition. And that would be people with low self-esteem who this could be, you know, reinforcing of that for them. This idea of, well, I put myself out there and a bunch of people ghosted me or I didn't get likes. It must confirm that I'm not a worthy person. Whereas really it, it is, as we've talked about many times before on the podcast, just how it goes when it, when it has almost this gamified feature to it of you could just swipe to the next one. And it actually is less about an individual themselves as it is about what else might be out there. But I also really, I think it's interesting what you said about how we reveal a lot to strangers early on, which is very different than what we do in the rest of the world. And it got me thinking just this past week, I was teaching about borderline personality disorder. And I was talking about how with borderline personality disorder, it's a disorder where people feel very intensely, whatever their feelings are, they're feeling that very deeply. And they often have some instability with self-image and commonly have instability in their interpersonal relationships. And we kind of talked about how a lot of the characteristics of having borderline personality disorder 
are a self-fulfilling prophecy for the problems that then go on in borderline personality disorder. One of them being people with borderline personality disorder who often feel so intensely are so willing to put out there early on what it is that they do feel and to let people know how intensely they feel. And lots of us are attracted to that at first because we're like, wow, how refreshing. Somebody who's totally honest about how they feel and who just throws themselves all in there. But that can get intense fast and and then people back off. And that's why a lot of the times people with BPD end up feeling rejected. They are rejected because their intense emotions initially drew people in, but then gets old pretty fast. And honestly, I mean, it, it's kind of the framework that goes on with online dating. It might really help explain why a lot of us have these experiences where we get so hurt or so blindsided by online dating. Because as you said, we're putting a lot of information out there on the front end that we would not normally share with strangers. And so you've really given me and hopefully our listeners a lot to think about as far as when you reflect on what it is that we're doing. And as you said too, make intentional decisions about that. So even in your case, when it doesn't go well, you take the opportunity to learn from that, to be like, okay, is it a pattern in my behavior? Is this thing something that hasn't gone well on multiple dates that I've been on, could this be a me thing? And if so, what can I do to work on that? And also if it's a them thing, is there a pattern in who I'm picking? So I think you're willing to look at this information objectively. And that seems to be part of what has made it a generally positive experience for you. And I know our listeners want that secret sauce. So to the extent that you have cleared that up for us, I know that that will be appreciated. I think that's a really wonderful and helpful insight because one of the things is that we have a very curated and slightly arbitrary set of information about the people that we meet online. And in the real world, we have just infinitely more context clues and, and signals that we process both conscious and subconscious levels. And so we may be able to assess or, or sort of suss out that someone is a, a person who maybe feels a bit more vulnerable or somebody who does sort of reveal a lot initially. And that that is actually, I think, in some ways, the flip side of the sort of after action analysis, which is there are times when something burns brightly and then burns out. And that's been a puzzle at times and, and don't necessarily know why. And also, sometimes it's just a run of luck. But I, I did want to say the other thing about it that is that sometimes even going into this strange and new process with a really sort of intentional strategy, having sort of sat down and thought about it and, and knowing a little bit about the internet and just a sort of dilettante bit about psychology doesn't keep you from going wrong. And there are times where you may be picking people who are, are right along every dimension, but come up short in one dimension that may actually be quite important. And so I found that one thing that I began to think about both for myself and also in the, the sort of people I was choosing is that I suspect that the three of us would wind up with, you know, if, if you sort of looked at the set of characteristics that we have, be a lot of overlap, right? The Venn diagram would overlap to a significant degree. And I realized that that works quite well for me. But the thing that I hadn't been thinking hard about and have been trying to since is what I think of as the, just as a sort of general term of capacity. And, and capacity is at least in, in along two dimensions. One is purely logistical, which everyone's struggled with. We have jobs, families, friends, we need to get enough sleep, we need to take out the trash. And so the question is, how much time do we each have to contribute to some sort of uh, relationship or interaction, whatever that might be? And how does that match up with what the person that we're you know, interacting with, what they're looking for? And for me, the, there have been times when that's just been a real mismatch and that's been difficult because I think, oh, this is somebody who's, who's generally lovely and would be a terrific fit um, if only, for example, they had more time or I wanted less time. And then the second thing is that there, I, I, I've thought about this and I now think about it when, when sort of looking at people, although it's, it's a little hard sometimes to, to guess from the information, is where we are in our lives. And so I met someone online who was terrific and smart and was also a, a professor and had a leadership role and was also a runner and uh, was terrific. And, you know, after a few dates, I eventually said, you know, this, this seems like it's going really well. The one thing I wanted to ask you about is that 
you, you have these commitments and you also have a toddler and you're in the midst of, of a you know, somewhat heated divorce, how much space do you have? Because in your shoes, I would find it difficult to make dating a kind of meaningful or frankly, even frequent part of my life right now. The question took her aback. But then after a day or two, she, she responded and she said, I thought about it and you're right. You seem like a perfectly fine person, but I just, I can't do this right now. And we have you know, stayed in touch off and on and ever since. But I really, I admired that because it was the ability to, to reflect and to think more deeply about um, what, we, what we can contribute and, and, and what we want and how that measures up to our resources at the moment. And I would say I love about that as well. And I wonder if this might be a good tip or like a let's try it for our listeners, which is to perspective take, which is what you did. You said, you know, thinking about what it might be like in your shoes, and then you offered up what you thought it might be like. And in a way, not in a way, it is giving somebody permission to have that other perspective, whereas maybe they feel like, that would be wrong if I'm thinking it, I should tamp that thought down. Whereas you kind of just gave that person permission to entertain that thought, to consider that thought. And I've had a similar experience more than once, actually. I guess it's funny because me being a psychologist, it is almost second nature to me to just think to point these things out. Um, Being in your shoes, here's what I learned. And it has changed people's answers more than once when I have done that. So again, I think a great insight. And let's get a little bit concrete here because one thing that I've noticed um, when I was on the dating apps and you know that I've also heard other heterosexual women comment on is that like a lot of men our age who are let's say let's say we're just taking the people that are actually relationship minded like not the people that are pretending to be that and lord knows there are plenty of those but but of the people that are relationship minded that they're not very good at managing their time uh and that they're really struggling or that they really are have too many commitments and so for example like i went out with someone who was perfectly nice but then the moment came after a couple dates where he couldn't schedule another date for five weeks. I may have mentioned this before on the podcast. And and I said to him, I was like, well, you know what? Why don't you get in touch when when it actually is the case that you're able to see each other again? And, you know, in the meantime, I met my now husband, right? So that's kind of that's kind of what happened. And, and, and to be clear, it took him just about another like two months or so until he met his now wife. So it was it, it's not like it was a big struggle for him. But but I have noticed this thing where like a lot of like let's say men with good jobs and children, like they really had a hard time just planning, like just planning a planning ahead and B actually being in touch sort of reliably. It's like, sometimes they would text a lot and then sometimes they disappear. But again, I'm I'm leaving out people who I thought were, I think were just players or or where something else was going on. But so, so if we're talking a little bit like numbers, like all of us here, are you know have one child right like all of us here are no longer with the parent of that one child everybody in this conversation like what is actually like a realistic expectation for example as to how many times a week or a month or whatever like people quote unquote should be seeing each other and yes i know we can always say like oh it's different for everybody but really like if you only see each other once every three months even though you live in the same city i think most people would say like that's Kind of a problem. So what are, I don't know, what is realistic here? Derek, what do you think is realistic for you? It's a great question. This is actually something where I personally ran aground is that I I met somebody, another professor who's actually really lovely and who was, had a tremendous number of responsibilities and, and had two kids. And we liked each other well enough that we, we decided to go out exclusively. But the one thing that I think we were both operating on unspoken assumptions about was frequency. And so she said, realistically, she had a lot going on. She had almost full-time custody of her younger son. And she, she said, well, you know, I could certainly commit to, you know, once or twice a month. And my jaw dropped a bit just because it, it, at the same time, like I was extremely surprised. I also, it was like a, a sort of small bell going off that I was like, oh, here's something. This is an incommensurability problem, right? Is that we just meant different things when we sort of started talking about exclusivity. But I think um, the sort of cheap way out is is to give the lawyer's answer, which is it depends. 
And it's something that I also think about as kind of built into capacity. I am lucky in that I have a, a five-year-old daughter who's fantastic and who has um, an extremely, I have an extremely capable co-parent in my, my former spouse. And so 50% of my time is, is free. And I'm also very slightly OCD. So I'm good at managing and planning things and I like to do it. And that helps. So I feel personally like I would like to block out, you know, even several nights a week or several times a week to see someone. I think that that would be fantastic. And I've realized too, that that is like a luxury that I possess. There are people who have near full-time caretaking responsibilities for a child or a parent, or they are in, um, you know, they are a surgeon in the ER and they simply, they're on call. They are not able to make certain commitments. The really sort of slightly disheartening thing about this, to be honest, in if, if we if we think about the, the listeners, if, if you're reflecting on this and you are one of those people, right, you are an ER nurse or you have your child full time, I think the hard reality is that it will be difficult to find a partner who will match up well with you and that that is something where it may require an adjustment in expectations. Maybe it prompts people to see you know, nothing is set. Sometimes we have more resources than we think. Sometimes we can be more creative and flexible than we think, but it's, it's difficult. And certainly it would have been quite a different story. I think when my daughter was 18 months old and just took a lot more. And now that she's five, it's, it's much easier. So my, my personal preference is generally with, for more interaction with my friends, um, with colleagues I like, with a partner. And so that just personally has been difficult in that you meet someone who is fantastic, but who just does not have the time. And it's likely going to be the case, as you said, that, you know, some of these people in six months or a year or two years, they will have the time, but I'll be living in Florida. So it will, it will really, it'll throw things off. And that too, I think about as, as a sort of like a capacity or resource problem, which is, it's just the realities that we have of, of juggling multiple demands and some of us have have heavier burdens than others well and it also depends on honestly how much money people have for babysitters right because that that's another thing i think michelle and i have seen with some of our friends a a topic that comes up a lot it's like okay this is how much like an evening away is going to cost me before i have even spent any money on the actual date and also naturally those people then get particularly upset if somebody cancels on them at the last second and they're like well great now i've already spent like or i've already committed to spending a hundred bucks that night on the babysitter so that's another thing of course to be mindful of michelle i see you're getting annoyed well, even just about that topic <laughs> tell I just me what's on your it. mind I hate it for people is all because actually like Derek, I'm in a situation with a great co-parent and I have my child roughly half the time. Sometimes it'll be a little more than that, um, but it's pretty consistent. And so I, I do have the luxury of being able to, you know, have to just go out when I wanted to on my not with my child nights. And so, but I do, I just feel so so badly for people who don't have that luxury for all the reasons that you mentioned, Derek. And I think I I just appreciate your honest assessment of the situation, which is, I think, what people need to hear, which is, you know, something is going to have to give in those kind of situations. And, And I guess my advice would be, don't let it be things that are really core values to you. Don't don't let those things give. It's better to hold out and wait for, so not date for longer, but while you're holding out to wait for somebody who truly is a better match. Or I'm curious in your case, Derek, with the person you mentioned who you guys were really compatible, but she only had one to two nights a month of availability. Do you think things might have gone differently if she had said, you know, or would you have been interested, I guess, if she had said, I can only do one to two nights a month. And I understand since you might be looking to connect more than that, that maybe exclusivity wouldn't really be a fit for us, but I'd still like to see you one to two nights a month. So I guess my question to you is, would it have still worked if that had been her perspective? And my thought for our listeners is like, that could be an example of, would you be willing to see somebody, but willing to see it from their point of view of maybe if all you have to give is one to two days a month, 
maybe that's not fair to ask of somebody, but if you if you're willing to let them see other people if that's okay with you so that you can still explore your relationship growing with that person, maybe that's one of the things that has to give. Um, certainly it does need to be something and maybe it's just patience. What would it have been like if she had said that, Derek? I think that's a really terrific idea. And it's something that I sort of came to after a long, long time is it, it just it hadn't really occurred to me, to be honest. And so I think it's it's fantastic that you you floated this because I think it's really helpful. And it's something that seems obvious now, but I had just like my default mode uh, was sort of like, I guess, like, you know, sort of top chef or something, which is, okay, like you have a bunch of contestants and then one emerges. And and that's the person that you, you see exclusively. And so the idea of, oh, seeing people on a sort of non-exclusive basis that's extended was in some ways sort of really a novel thought. And one that I'm I think is a very helpful one, especially under those circumstances. I'm still processing. And I think it would have worked better. The other thing too is in some cases, people are really, um, they're constrained at the moment, but they they have a sort of clear end date to when that will be. And they can say, things are difficult now, but if if we connect well and you have the patience to live with this for three months or six months, I know that this is going to end, right? Like tax season will end or whatever it is that I have uh, will end, or my, my kid will go off to college. That too can be helpful. And so, and, and I think some of this, which is a, a really kind of difficult suggestion, it might not be correct, is I think it's helpful to be gently transparent about these things because it will, it shrinks the pool of people who will potentially be a fit for you, but that pool will shrink anyway. And it's just a question of whether it's better to do it up front or, or later. Um, and I think all of us are slightly hopeful, right? That we will find somebody who likes us so much that they will overlook whatever limitations uh, that we have. But time seems like one that is is really important to people along different dimensions. So there are some people who really want to see people really frequently. I know some people for whom it's extremely important for there to actually be a kind of cap on time because they are they are not people who want to date exclusively. Their their preference is to be is to be non-exclusive. And so that by definition, right, they, they're gonna divide up their free time among multiple people. And so this this kind of thing goes to the reflection piece of can can we think about what our limitations are and then try to bring those across in a way that is not that is clear but not off putting. And that's I think that's really hard to do. Especially, you know, it we have essentially 140 characters, right? It's, it's really hard to sort of squeeze in everything. Loves cats and tacos and, and walks along the beach. And by the way, is only available, you know, two nights a week. Yeah, well, like you said, I mean, people want to curate, right? Ex ante, and they don't want to turn anyone off. And then there's the collective action problem where if most people are not putting limitations on their profiles, then you really stand out as the person that did, right? Uh, so, so that's all tricky. So Derek, I'm hearing a lot of like dated this academic, dated that academic, obviously you're married to academics. Like what, what is it with you and fellow academics? Is some of that, you know, because yes, you're in Tucson. So I would imagine there are a lot of smart people who happen to also be faculty that work for a university. Although I'm sure there are other smart people. They're also in, in all sorts of professions. Um, but, but is, is part of that geography is, is, has that happened sort of like across the, your life and across geography and um, uh, is, is that is it hard dating other academics being married to other academics like what are what do you see as the pros and cons I guess because I mean I have I have my own opinions on that having been married to an academic once and not the other time and you know having dated some people that were academics and some people that were not so please go ahead but don't go ahead because I want to add to the question as well, which is um, because I think a lot of people do that, right? Like date within their own industry. For example, you always hear actors talking about it or people in the entertainment industry saying somebody else in my industry is likely to understand my lifestyle and the particular stressors and complications that go with it. So I wonder, is some of it that that is part of the draw? Because I think that that, while not all of our listeners are academics, I bet a lot of them can resonate with the idea of dating with or within or outside of their industry. So, okay, just throwing that in there too. Michelle, I think that's a wonderful point because I, I always wondered about Hollywood. Why do actors marry one another? And the answer is, well, that's who they meet. It's they just they don't meet many uh, law professors actually. Too bad for us. And also, as you say, it's 
it's someone who can immediately relate to the strangeness of 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 one's particular world and so academics they they get the odd environment that is higher education and they get the sort of tasks that we have and we can talk about similar things they also uh, tend to be interested in similar things broadly speaking and so even if you have somebody who is you know an, an engineer or who works in public health they have sort of similar requirements and for you know most most people are academics are kind of omnivores intellectually and so they like to learn about a lot of different things and so that's that's exciting like oh here's somebody who's smart and interesting and and has something new that i can learn about and and relate to things that i do that's really cool and and attractive i think that one difficulty is that obviously academics tend to be relatively focused and intense and kind of driven people and so you put two people like that into a, a relationship or a room together it has it has some possibility of of creating its own its own tensions and so that's one thing right is, is is seeing a little bit of oneself across the the table can be a challenge and so i think that there irena you you make two really good points one is that tucson is it's a city it's got you know roughly a million people in the metro area if we count very very generously but what it really is 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 three things it's a land-grant university it's a major air force base and it's a retirement community and those three segments of tucson are relatively separate and so the i, I eventually realized that a good proxy for someone who had some or many of the characteristics that I was looking for was some affiliation with the university, right? They had graduated from the university, they worked part-time at the university, or they taught as an adjunct professor. And given just the sort of sheer difficulty of figuring out and looking through profiles, like who was going to be a good fit, I used it as a shortcut. And I actually concluded after this fall that it's not a terrific shortcut, that I had been sort of too blinkered in that. And in some ways, that's actually ungenerous of me, right? Is that it's, it's it's gatekeeping in a way that I think is not not commendable. The upsides I talked about with academics are they get your life. They also tend to have super flexible schedules, which is wonderful. They can go to coffee at like two in the afternoon when normal people are doing you know actual work. They have uh, summers quote unquote off, meaning that they're also writing, but they uh, they can be anywhere. The downsides are one that it tends to be a small world, so. If you date a couple people at the University of Arizona, the odds are pretty good that you're going to rule yourself out from dating a few other people at the University of Arizona because they're friends. And they're like, Derek is a jerk, which is true. Just going to put that out there. And, and then the other thing, of course, is just is somebody who's dated a couple of law professors. That's an even smaller world, right? So my, my former spouse, her office is down the hall. We are in the same faculty meetings together. And so that requires... Uh, and much less now, but for a while, required some adulting on both of our parts. Is that you know you you move through the same circles, and we we all tend to to sort of dress for the ride rather than planning for the crash. And that there is there is a little bit of that, which is sometimes people who are really close. It's it's the standard hazard of dating in the workplace. I was just going to ask. So, have you decided you prefer one over the other dating? in industry or outside of industry, or is it just totally dependent on who the person is? I think it's I think it's dependent on who the person is. I, I probably honestly still have a slight bias for academics because these are just my people, right? These are the folks I relate to. And they're also the people, this isn't true, you know, obviously with online dating, but for in-person interactions, these are the people I come into contact with the most. So just statistically, if I were to meet somebody in real life, that would be the most likely thing. Still, uh, I, I mean, I mostly go to intellectual property conferences where romance is, shall we say, scarce. But uh, it's the, the one thing that I've, I've noticed too is that I think that one thing that has been good for me is that when you, if you date people, so if um, you date someone who works in um, a sector like, let's just say somebody who is a software engineer, a software sales representative, wonderful. Right, is that I can I can talk about and enjoy thinking about that that part of my past life, and it gives us it gives us a way to connect to relate to one another. And most of us have a lot of sort of different facets, and so we can talk about that you know enjoying going scuba diving or rock climbing, enjoyment of film noir or whatever it might be. And so I think that that's actually a good challenge for me personally is to say, 
to push myself out of the comfort zone and to try to find people who have less obvious but still very good connections. And it's another thing that in some ways is easier with academics because I am, probably like many academics, pretty introverted. And so I find it harder to get out of my shell and kind of get out there and do the first date thing. And if you're aware that the other person across the table or the, you know, the, in the coffee shop is also equally probably nervous and maybe a little bit fumbling, it's really reassuring. It, it sort of drives down the fear factor. And, and so some of it, some of it is that I obviously need to, to get over that piece because the stakes aren't actually that high and it would be, it would be good for me to push a little harder. You know, a friend of mine who is not an academic, but in a different life might've been said that she, well, she's married now, but when she was younger, that she would go on dates and she would walk out of there thinking, wow, I'm so interesting. And you know, it was a little bit of a joke, right? But it, well, there was also this sense of, you know, that a lot of the people she was meeting were not like, like you're describing, like did not have all of these different interests and just sort of did not have that kind of richness in their intellectual lives. And certainly that's not something that cuts neatly across like academics versus non-academics, but just in terms of like heuristics, it's something that is going to come up. So I was wondering if we switch gears a little bit and we talk a bit about the connections to your work. So first of all, as somebody who's been a computer engineer and is now an internet law scholar, what have you learned about dating app algorithms, whether from what you read or what you observed, and would you do anything differently if you were the one in charge? Because I got the sense from some of your earlier comments that indeed you would. So if you could talk a little bit about that. The dating app algorithms are fascinating. And one of the things I love is that people have begun working to try to hack them in sort of very casual ways. And uh, that's a lot of fun. Uh, it also suggests that these algorithms, I think, are relatively crude. And it's not a surprise because we actually, and, and Michelle, this is your domain. My suspicion is that we know relatively little about if we took two people and sort of had a relatively fulsome profile of them in real life, it would be difficult, I think, at some level to predict whether there would be uh, successful matches, right? Is, is that we have relatively um, noisy variables and we have far noisier variables online because we're, we're depending on self-reported data, right? I mean, it's my profile now reads that uh, I'm the king of Canada. And so it's wonderful being royalty, but that's, that's actually the problem is that, you know, it's, it's an algorithm which is suffering from the standard software problem of garbage in, garbage out. And it's also taking a set of, you know, a relatively small set of prompts, a set of freeform text and, and trying to make sense of that. And we know that things like uh, natural language inference models and whatnot are getting better at doing that, but they're, they're still pretty rough. And so I would say that for me, the, the algorithms have just been wild. So there are times they do a really good job. There have been times where there have been matches that are really not good fits in ways that I think would be relatively obvious just from the surface characteristics that I revealed in my profile. And undoubtedly, I mean, I, th I think one thing that matters is obviously just the sort of, we have something approaching monopoly dominance of the dating app marketplace, right? As so we have one major player that has essentially decided they're going to sort of, you know, vertically cut up the market. And match group. Exactly. And so I don't, I don't have a view on this. I don't know enough about antitrust to say, but I'm not sure that a lack of competition is great because obviously this is an area with a very strong network effects. For the algorithms, I think that there are, one is just, can they get can they get better, right? Can they sort of learn faster? And uh, sometimes this is easy. I, I love Spotify and Spotify does an absolutely wonderful job of finding new music for me. It's fantastic. and It's well worth the 10 bucks a month. Dating apps, not quite so much, at least in my experience so far. So one is just, can they show us people who are better fits initially? The second piece, which I think is an extraordinarily difficult one, and it's frankly a problem of, of law and access to data, is that all dating apps are thinking hard and trying very hard to solve the trust and safety problem, which happens to be one that is, is particularly, it, it's strongly gendered. You know, it's, it, it's one where I have had only a few experiences that have been mildly hair-raising, but these experiences are extraordinarily common. For, for women. And it is very difficult because the the apps, you know, Match Group does not want to build this functionality 
into its software because they don't want to hold the risk for basically, I even think of this as, you know, it could be Gladiator, it's thumbs up, thumbs down on someone. Uh, it could be a Likert scale where it's one to five on sort of great to creepy. It could be something that is a block list, which is, you know, someone who has proven to be a bad actor on one app. Is there a way to keep them from migrating to other apps? And if we look at things like the combination of privacy laws, defamation law, and so forth, it's extraordinarily risky to build that functionality. You know, probably the, the best known example is Garbo, which has essentially, I think, tried to be a sort of, has tried to establish a policy framework and to be a middleware player in that they're going to pull from multiple data sets and they're going to try to generate some sort of relatively holistic analysis. But they're quite afraid of being sued. Uh, they're afraid of being sued for being negligent if they overlook someone. They have to deal with things like the Fair Credit Reporting Act. They have to deal with privacy law, particularly if they start thinking about international things, moving into the EU and so forth. And so it's, it's a zone where you have this extraordinary void, right? This is something that would make virtually everyone much, much better off. And it turns out to be a legal conundrum. And so my hope actually is that given that dating apps are so widely used and given that there is some some market power in Matroop, that perhaps is the ability to lobby for some sort of safe harbor for things like trust and safety capabilities where we know that it's going to be wrong in both directions, but an imperfect indicator is infinitely better than none. The second thing about this, which is also quite problematic, but I think in a different way, is that people come to us on dating apps largely in, out of context. And if, for those of us who've been on an app for a while, you see people sort of drop off and reappear. And sometimes if it's somebody you have saw once or twice, you reach out like, hey, it's nice to see you again. I hope things are well. And uh, I'm really sorry that didn't work out. That's happened to be a few times. And I'm, you trade email and just kind of commiserate, which is at one level wonderful. But I wonder too, if, if this, and this sort of relates to the kind of trust and safety piece in certain ways, if there isn't space for some sort of feedback loop in this, which is, okay, look, 10 people have gone out with Derek. Every single one only had one date because they found him to be creepy or a jerk or to have no personality whatsoever. And perhaps there's an ability to internalize that. The real threat there obviously is gaming and it's uh, gaming and shaming, to be honest. There are, there are known ways to deal with that, which is, look, if you are a troll, we're just going to kick you off the platform as well, right? Is that it's like Uber, we can raid in both directions. And at some level, that could also improve the, the fit algorithm, right? Which is, oh, it turns out that five of these people thought he was great and five thought he was awful. What's common among the, the two groups so that we can show people who are more like the people who will find him to be great? And so I sense that that's something where the industry is, is slower. I mean, we've, we've had this for a long time, right? You can vote things up or down on Reddit or Slashdot, or we have Yelp. We have all sorts of capabilities for essentially feedback loops. And we the problems are relatively well known. And it strikes me as the sort of thing where this is also an, an information problem, right? And this is, Irina, what you and I study, which is we're, we're in a world that's awash with cheap information and dating sites much more so. And so the hardest thing to do is to signal credibly in a world of cheap information. You have to find a signal that is honest, and by honest, we usually mean expensive. That's why matchmaking services tend to be expensive, right? Is that it doesn't matter. It's, you're not even necessarily paying for the expertise. What you're paying for is the gatekeeping. It's, it's people who are willing to show they're committed enough that they will, they will sort of pony up a fair amount up front. And so this strikes me as something where one potential model is just, this is a premium service. You could opt into this idea of rating and being rated, and that too sort of solves the market for lemons problem. So some of the, I mean, there have been some apps that have played around with things like reviews. Some of the concerns that came in, right, were like defamation lawsuits and, and all of that sort of stuff. And then also kind of, let's call them revenge ratings, right? And, and that's also a problem with reporting, where some women say they've been kicked off from match group apps or other apps and they think it's because they shut some guy down sometimes it would even be because he had done something very inappropriate but then they would they the women would get reported one thing i'm wondering about is how you feel about this kind of decentralization that is happening now so in many cities 
there are now these Facebook groups where women have created essentially a whisper network where they talk about men and they post the pictures of the men and they and they found various ways to kind of get around Mark Zuckerberg's rules on what isn't isn't allowed, right? So it's like, okay, you have to post like the stuff in the comment. You can't put the main stuff in like the original post, right? So there are all these like rules, right, around like what you can and can't do. And so of course there there's no guarantee either that the the information will be high quality. Now it's maybe a little more reliable if multiple people are saying the same thing, but do you think this is overall a positive or a negative development that we're a having this kind of thing spring up at all as an extra legal mechanism and b spring up in this particular form as opposed to as you're describing embedded in the apps themselves and so i'm wondering what you think about where this is going it's a really hard question and what makes it hard is that i think at some level I have an engineer's ideal, which is that this would be built into the application. And the reason that that's valuable is that it makes it available to everyone. It allows for aggregation across data stores. It allows for things like vetting and verifying, which I think services like Garble were, were thinking of trying to do. But I also think that that is unrealistic for the reasons that you posit. And so it makes me sad. I mean, in, in some senses, the Facebook groups that you describe are exactly analogous to the pre-Me Too movement, right? Which is, look, these are the people that you can't take a meeting by yourself with or be at, be at risk. And so it's depressing, but by the same token, I also think of it as a sort of really admirable form of, of sort of self-help and of leveraging social norms in ways that sidestep the ability to use the to use law and the legal system, not on its merits, where I suspect that um, many of these, if not all of these claims, would prove to be well-founded, but the ability to use law to effectively terrorize, right? Which is that it's expensive to hire a lawyer. It's extraordinarily painful to go through anything approaching discovery. And so all of us would likely back down in the face of that. And so having these kind of slightly subterranean networks is powerful and strikes me as a, a, a remarkable second best option with the standard problems of um, gatekeeping. You have to keep uh, the people who are trying to ferret this out because their names are, are being discussed in there. You have to keep them out. And yet you hope to let as many people who are you know, potential dates, I mean, and generally speaking, it's women in, right? Because they have something to contribute and they have something to gain from it. It makes me wonder too, if and you know the legal basis of this is a little bit questionable, but because we are talking about a problem that is so highly gendered, maybe what we need is something like a Bumble approach to things like verification or reputation or whatnot, which is it's one-sided. So it's it's women who rape guys, and if I thought about this for like probably thirty seconds, I'd probably like have a frowny face and say that's not fair, but it actually is fair at a larger sense at a larger scale. That would be really interesting too, and that I wonder if it would have exactly the same effect we were talking about with this sort of premium reputation rating idea, which is if you had a service like that, I think that the people who would opt in, it might be because they were more certain that they either were, generally speaking, good actors or that they could show that they were good actors. And that in itself might be really beneficial. Yeah, and this really has to come from Match Group because you know we've seen when the app Gatsby started up, for example, that was really all about safety, that it ended up getting a whole bunch of users, but more than 95% of them were women, right? So like the men did not self-select into this. Uh, I will tell you that a little bird from, you know, inside the online dating industry has told me that some of the safety measures, they know very well that what should actually happen. And I'm going to leave aside here for a second, sort of the topic of non-binary people, which I realize is like its own, you know, topic worthy of conversation, but just sort of for simplicity's sake, we're looking at the heterosexual dating market and we're looking at sort of like cis men, cis women there. They know very well that actually they should provide certain measures that protect cis women more. So for example, maybe only the men should be asked for their identification, right? Or something of that sort, but they don't want to do this because it's a huge PR problem. And it's like, if you are a 
large dating app or a conglomerate or whatever, and you're announcing, we're now going to have these measures just for men or just for women, even though you are the, perhaps the only entity that can do that, because as we've seen, smaller app tries to do it. It doesn't work. There's a collective action problem where like you can't really that easily draw the men away from things that are largely working for them, which is the, the sort of mainstream apps. And so I think that's a sort of a tremendously complex issue. Could you also maybe explain to our listeners, like, I mean, I've touched on it before, but could you explain to them what section 230 is and, and how it complicates some of what we're talking about in terms of liability for dating app operators and, and user safety? Absolutely. And section 230 is one of those legal topics that you know, only probably 200 people in America cared about for a very long time until 2016, when actually it turns out that ex-president Trump as a candidate was strongly opposed to Section 230, call for its repeal. And, you know, then in the 2020 race, actually both presidential candidates, President Biden and former President Trump, were unified on the need for repeal of this legislation, which is really surprising. Washington agrees on very little across the aisle. Uh, just briefly, Section 230 was a small and largely unnoticed piece of an enormous overhaul of America's telecommunication laws that occurred in 1996, just as the internet was exploding, just as commercial traffic had been allowed onto the internet. And the fear was at the time, the nascent online services, AOL, Prodigy, CompuServe, many of your listeners will have to actually Google those, faced a really, uh, they faced Hobson's choice which is if they had, let's say, a discussion forum, let's, let's say it's a dating discussion forum, if they did not engage in any curation whatsoever, then in all likelihood, they would be shielded from the risk of defamation liability because they would have only, they could only be found liable for actually knowing that something was defamatory. On the other hand, that's not a very nice world to live in where people can just post anything and the moderators don't take it down. In fact, they may not be a moderator. On the other hand, if you are a service that tried to moderate things, so you take out the trolls and the spam and whatnot, you have to be perfect. Because if you miss something, if something slips through, now all of a sudden you've engaged in a function of being a publisher. It's like publishing letters to the editor in the New York Times. You've made the decision to gatekeep, and so you can be held liable for defamatory content. And that, to Congress, seemed really to deserve the purposes of the internet and these, these burgeoning platforms. And so they put in place a legal measure that changes radically the law of things like defamation online and offline. And the short version is that if you are a platform like Twitter, you are immune for the most part from civil liability and from state criminal liability for things your users post or for things that you curate and decide to let through or that you decide to take down. And so it means if we go back to the New York Times, if the New York Times posts on its you know, in its its print form, it actually says, oh, hey, you know, uh, literally the editor saying that, you know, um, Derek is a drug dealing dog abuser, and that, that turns out to be defamatory because I only abuse cats, then they're going to be liable. But if they do it on their website, they won't be liable because of this law. And so that is one of the things that in many ways, you know, people credit this, and I think rightly so, for allowing the world of user-generated content and for interactive platforms to flourish in a way that has has made life infinitely richer, but it has also put significant pressure on different points. And some of these points are the ones that we're talking about, which is why should it be that platforms can leave up defamatory content? Why don't they have to take down revenge porn or a number of these other things? And so I think that that all of those things are, you know, this 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 sort of no um, perfect way of doing this. And Section 230 is is something that you know to to run for Congress these days you need three things: you need to have a lapel pin, you need to have a good Twitter account, and you need a proposal for reforming Section 230. Okay, so I think we've got one more question for you from the sphere of your work, which is relating to, well, I, I don't know if it entirely relates to your work, but you can tell us. Um, it relates to AI. So what do you foresee as some of the problems of people using AI, such as ChatGPT, in the dating realm? So we've already heard examples from people we know, Irena and I, of realizing somebody is using AI to write 
messages to them on the apps and they're like, this doesn't sound real. Are like, are you using AI right now? And the person actually did admit to it and said, yes, I am. And so she said, well, look, I really want to like genuinely get to know you. And so at least it is crude enough, as you said, that at least right now people can detect it when somebody is using AI. But as the technology advances, do you think people will be using this more as far as dating? What problems do you see that AI might introduce into this realm of our lives? It's, it's with so many things, right? Um, ChatGPT is making things both better and worse. And um, AI is actually already a challenge in dating apps. And uh, it was something that I had no idea about. So, you know, having been on Bumble, your users undoubtedly know that Bumble is essentially a, where it's it's up to, um, at least in sort of cis male, cis female uh, setups, for the, it's, it's the woman's choice to initiate the conversation, all well and good. It turns out that Bumble is there to help if you're having some difficulty breaking the ice. And so it'll suggest some little conversational openers for you that are, as best I can tell, you know, just sort of spit up by an AI and are actually quite awful. And so I got one of these from somebody and was like, this is like a really weird, this sounds like an interview question that I got back in the days when I was applying to software companies and they're trying to sort of give you a brain teaser. And so I, I kind of I sent it back nicely, but with maybe a little bit more spin than my usual response on it. And then later found out that it wasn't that she was trying to grill me. Bumble suggests this thing to people. And I'm like, well, that's terrible AI, right? You're making things worse without any question. So I suspect that you're absolutely right, which is that people who are risk averse, especially, or, or people who are not confident about um, their ability to write, which is totally reasonable, or um, people who find the online um, sort of milieu slightly intimidating, ChatGPT is is a nice crutch to lean on. The difficulty with ChatGPT is that it's it's really down the middle of the road, right? It will give you, if you ask it for it, it will give you the most average sonnet ever written in the English language. And so I think at some level, this has, has two lessons. One is that it, it's a crutch and you can get by with it. On the other hand, the hope is that each of us has something unique that is valuable right, that is, is an attractive thing out there. And ChatGPT itself masks that. It can't do a very good job at describing you unless you're really thoughtful enough to tell ChatGPT, could you explain in a short sort of online dating message that I have the following wonderful qualities? At that point, write it yourself. The second thing that I think is important and that turned out to be an interesting lesson for me as somebody who likes the online environment is I think it emphasizes something that would be a suggestion I would make, which is once you've kind of verified, right, that the person is probably not a bot, a stalker, et cetera, that getting off of the app and into real life and into a coffee shop or something is immensely valuable because that's the point where you'll be able to tell, oh, wow, this person sounds totally different than what apparently looks like a bot or we seemed compatible and we're not. There's a great temptation because of just kind of low transaction and information costs of these platforms, at least for me, to chat forever. It's wonderful, right? Getting to know somebody, it's like writing missives back in the days of Dickens, but it is also a trap. And it's a trap that uh, ChatGPT makes slightly more dangerous because it it may draw things out just because it will offer up what my, my colleague here at the University of Arizona who does machine learning, he says that ChatGPT is good at what he calls beige bullshit. And that's exactly the sort of sort of like down the middle pablum kind of stuff that will occasionally be slightly strange if you sort of read enough chat GPT output. And then I think the, the sort of last piece of this is just what happens if you are interacting with someone and it turns out that you, you know, you, you're pretty confident that what they're doing is they're using chat GPT to message with you. I don't know what conclusion to draw from that or what signal that sends. Does that mean they're nervous? Does that mean they think that you know, you're great and they're, they're really worried about messing it up? Does it mean that they're not devoting any particular time to you? They're just basically outsourcing it to a software program. I'm not sure. So I think that the, the temptation is with all things is it, it will be easy to use chat GPT when in a pinch. And it's another area where I think that hopefully when we all think about it, we'll be able to push ourselves just a little bit and have a little bit more confidence in our ability to express ourselves and to eventually articulate what it is that we have to offer, even at the, the you know, with the certainty that that will not find approval with everyone. Some of us find a sonnet better than average if it comes from the heart rather than from the computer. I have a colleague who 
just in playing around with ChatGPT, asked ChatGPT to write a love letter to his wife. And it actually put out what he thought was a very good love letter. And so he sent it to her. She also thought it was very good until she got to the end where his attention to detail had slipped because ChatGPT just put love, comma, insert name here in brackets, and he didn't take that out. So it was a wonderful <laughs> love letter up until the very last line. Yeah, this also reminds me of a thing I saw. I think it was on Reddit or one of those where somebody said that ChatGPT wrote like a, a better sort of like speech for a funeral or something than the person could have ever come up with. And like, is it ethical to use that? I just thought that was kind of sad. That Again, and I thought that goes toward Michelle's comment. It's like, no, like there's probably not a real way that it is better. There's something about it. And in here we can get into all sorts of, you know, matrixy type stuff, right? In the conversation. But I found it a little bit disturbing. So so Derek, we don't want to keep you forever. So let's ask one last personal question, which is as you're looking ahead to your new life in Gainesville, Florida, what are you going to do in terms of dating there? Like what, what's your approach going to be? Is it going to be different from the one you're taking in Tucson? Like what, what are some lessons that you've learned or what are some hypotheses that you want to test as you try to figure out, huh, is Gainesville sort of like Tucson? Like I'm, I might want to meet a lot of people affiliated with the university, but maybe I should keep a little bit of an open mind. So how are you going to approach it? Uh, with a mixture of wonder and terror to be honest, because I think it's, it's new, right? And it requires sort of dipping one's toe into, into a new, new set of people, which is, is both um, good and difficult. And look, Florida has in some ways the same problem that Arizona does, which is basically a reputation for being a little bit odd. And so if I were somebody moving to Arizona from Brooklyn, for example, I might be slightly reluctant to dive into the online dating pool just because Arizonans have a reputation for being unusual. Um, and same thing with Florida. I think that the thing that that I will probably try to do is is to change the way in which I describe myself to try to emphasize slightly different things and to try to give a more rounded picture of me and to also do the thing that we talked about earlier in the podcast, which is there are certain limitations that I have, right? I have a, I have a five-year-old and for you know a lot of people in in our age cohort their kids are older they have considerably more freedom even when they're on their own parenting time you know you can you can leave a 16 year old and they won't burn down the kitchen or shave the cat and where like I'm, I'm mostly there but not quite there and so so i think it's important for me to be upfront like look i have a young child and that that has sort of its great sides and it also imposes some limits on me and then i think also just this idea of meeting people in person as quickly as possible and probably not relying solely on ChatGPT. It was something where I found that, like many academics, I adapted really well to COVID. I enjoyed sitting and doing Zoom and, and being able to write. All those things are wonderful, but it turns you into a hermit fairly quickly. And so I think it, it will be important for me to do both things, partly because it just puts less pressure on the online dating piece, which is it's not the only thing that you have going. And so so I think that ultimately, I'm really curious as to what this will be like. It's just, again, the sort of geek side of me thinks this is a terrific natural experiment. Let's see what it's like to move to another large university town in a place that's really culturally different from Arizona and just see who I meet. So wonder and terror. Well, good luck to you. Thank you. Um, and thank you again both for having me and for this podcast. Sometimes it's nice to know simply that you're not alone. And sometimes it's nice to be able to get some really good practical advice. And frankly, this show has been terrific for me for both. Well, thank you so much, thank Derek. You. And, uh, we've really enjoyed having you uh, as, a, as a guest, both for your personal story and for the expertise that you bring. And I'm sure our listeners will feel the same way. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. No duh.
You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, or Mastodon, where we are on the Fostodon server with two S's. We also appreciate support to defray our costs to run the podcast. You can help us out at Swipe Strangers on coffee.com, which is ko-fi.com. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Farini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kujuklu for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone.